0: Well, good morning, Rocky Pete. How you doing? Good to see you. Uh, Good to be together in a brand new year, isn't it? It's just awesome to be here. Hey, I've got one special announcement today. It's only for the 11 o'clock service. You can say you were here. Uh, I I know a lot of you are football fans. Any football fans out there? Yeah, awesome. We We got the playoffs going today, right? Some of you are like super football fans. And you are into fantasy football, right? And so uh, that ended for most of us about, what, a couple weeks ago. A lot of wives and girlfriends are praising God. That's over. Um, but there's one particular uh, fantasy football league here at Rocky Peak that's very close to my heart because both my son-in-law's have been in it. Uh, some, some close friends are in it. And uh, there, there's two of the guys in this group that's had this bet, right? And the bet is, is that whoever loses to the other... They have to wear the other person's colors, to church, sit on the front row, and be introduced as the loser, right? Yes. And, and so this bet is between my son-in-law, seem to hear, I love with all my heart, and and between Craig McDonald, one of the greatest guys in this church. He's an elder, and I am so proud to announce that though he is an elder, uh, and he lost. Um, that he has just shown great commitment, showing up, following through on his commitment, showing awesome humility. Can we give it up for Mr. Craig McDonald? This a loser of the year. Yes, yes. I'm talking, Way to go, Craig. I am proud of you, and that's the kind of man I'm looking for on our elder board right there. where uh, wear, wear the colors proudly. So, uh, hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak. If you're here for the very first time, uh, congratulations. We're just glad you are here. We've been praying that you'd come and join us, and so I hope you enjoy your time. But uh, inside your program is a message note sheet we use every week during this time, and so we're going to kick off a brand new series. You'll definitely want to pull that out that'll help you follow along, and then if you guys are all set and ready to go, I'm all ready too. You guys ready? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for a new year, a fresh start, a new beginning. Thank you that you're the God of new beginnings. You don't care where we've come from. You only care where we're going. Uh, And you're the one that makes all things new. And so today, as we uh, jump in this brand new series, uh, we pray, as we start this new year together, it would truly be a day of new beginnings for us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, today we are starting this new series that's called Jesus the King. And, And this is a series about the life and teaching of Jesus as told, the story is told, through a a man, one of the early uh, great leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man named Mark. And so what I want to do today is start off by talking just a little bit about this Gospel of Mark. It's one of the most amazing documents in human history, most influential documents, And I want to spend just a few minutes there talking about Mark before we launch into into starting his gospel. And so if you have a note sheet open there, it says uh, Jesus the King, the gospel of Mark. And let's jump in. I want to give you, I want to give you just uh, uh, three reasons I love the gospel of Mark. Um, Early on in my Christian journey, Mark was the first gospel I really spent a lot of time in uh, studying in a systematic way. And uh, I love this gospel for at least three reasons, probably more, but at least three. I want to give them to you real quick. All right. So there, there's not a place in your note sheet in order to like you know fill in the blanks or anything. So let me just give you some key words. And so if you're a note taker, key word, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, the, the first word that, that comes to mind here is early or earliest um, or first, something like that. Uh, uh, according to most uh, most biblical scholars, believe that the Gospel of Mark was the very first document in human history that we have today that describes the life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, we'll talk about this more later, but, but written about year 65 AD, uh, about 30 years, 35 years after the life of Jesus while eyewitnesses are still abounding, uh, the, the first document in history about Jesus. So that when you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you're, you're reading the first document in human history about the coming of Jesus, like front row seats, when the movement of Jesus was very young. Uh, uh, Most scholars believe that both Matthew and Luke, which we call those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, because they're very similar. Most scholars believe that Mark was the first and that both Matthew and Luke built their Gospels on top of Mark's. They started with Mark's as a basis, and then they added other material, other stories, teaching, and so on, and built on top of that. In fact, uh, Luke actually says this in in the beginning of his Gospel. He says, you know, many have undertaken to write an account of the life and teaching of Jesus, and I, I've researched that. I've done my own eyewitness research, and so I'm putting together this document here uh, for you about the life and teaching of Jesus. And so uh, it's the it's the earliest document. So, uh, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, or the, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, ninety percent of the Gospel of Mark is in Matthew. Uh, if you look at Luke, fifty percent. Uh, the gospel of Mark is in Luke, you see? And so, so when we come to the gospel of Mark, it's like front row seats uh, on the early movement of Jesus as It's the first time the story is told, okay? Uh, uh, secondly, uh, second key word is uh, Peter or Apostle Peter. Uh, there's really good evidence that, uh, that the gospel of Mark is based on the life and experiences uh, first-hand experiences of the Apostle Peter, who was, of course, the leader of the band of brothers that Jesus called his 12 disciples, these men who are called to travel with him and lead his movement. Um, for example, in the year 125 A.D., uh, that we have testimony of one of the early church leaders called the Early Church Father. He was a man named Papias, or Papias, uh, from the, he was bishop, uh, head of the whole church in the the major city of Hierapolis in like modern day Turkey, and uh, and he he talks about Mark's close relationship with Peter and how how P- Mark's gospel is based on his the teaching of Peter, and so there on your note sheet I put this quote. It's kind of long, but I think it's important for us as a church to understand that we stand in the long history tradition of what God's been doing throughout history. And so uh, there on your note sheet it says Mark became. Peter's interpreter and he wrote accurately though not in order. So catch that uh, what, what, what he's saying is that uh, Mark's gospel is not necessarily in chronological order sometimes it's topics put together uh, all, all that he remembered of the things are, that had been said or done by the Lord. so for he had not himself heard the Lord those Peter hadn't I mean uh, Mark hadn't heard the Lord or been his follower but later as they said he followed Peter and Peter delivered teachings as the occasion required. So just like today, if I'm teaching on a topic and I say, it reminds me of something Jesus said or did, and I will bring up part of the story. He says, Peter did the same thing. And so Mark's uh, Mark's gospel is just kind of pulling together these, these things that he learned from Peter that he heard him teach in many settings about the life and teaching of Jesus. So he says, Peter delivered teachings as occasion required, rather than compiling a sort of orderly presentation of the traditions of the Lord. And so Mark was not wrong in recording this way. It sounds like some people were criticizing Mark's gospel, like it's not chronological. It says that the individual items as he remembered them, his uh, one concern was to leave out nothing that he had heard and to make no false statements in reporting them. And so early on, we have a history from the Bishop of Hierapolis, year 125, that, that Mark's gospel is based on the teaching of Peter. And this, this follows, if you study church history, that period between 100 and 200, you have several of the early church fathers who say the same thing. In fact, together, here's what the picture that they paint. They'll say that, that Mark wrote the gospel. He wrote it uh, right about the time of Peter's death, either right before or right after. They'll, they'll disagree on that, which we know was about mid-60s A.D., and so that's how we can date it. And, and so that it was written in Rome. It's written to Christ's followers to help them understand not only who Jesus is, but what it means to follow them. So it's kind of a manual of Christian living. Um, and, and then on top of that, uh, it's written in a time of great persecution because we, we know that the apostle Peter was put to death by the Caesar Nero who unleashed the first major empire-wide empire wide uh, persecution against Christians uh, whether crucifying them, uh, putting, uh, soaking them in oil and lighting them on fire to light the games in the Colosseum. Uh, clothing them in dog skins, and then setting the dogs loose as sport in the Colosseum. So it was during this period of time, as the apostle Peter dies for Christ, tradition says he was crucified upside down, that as Nero kills him, Mark feels like the time is right to take the teaching he's received from Peter all these years and put it into a permanent form so that they could share it with new believers on what it means to follow Christ in the midst of persecution especially, but also to share with non-believers and introducing them because at this point, the gospel of Jesus in, in just thirty five years has moved from Jerusalem to the heart of the Roman Empire, and people are coming to christ and so So what I want you to catch is that when we 're reading the the, the the Gospel of mark it 's not only the earliest document but it 's the document coming through the eyes of Peter, the leader of the apostles when the movement of Jesus was very young and fresh and uh, Let me do a quick sidebar on this. This is important because uh, Uh, Every year, you're going to have articles in the newspaper, a Time Magazine uh, article, a Discovery Channel show that's going to argue that the Gospels that we have in the New Testament are not really the earliest Gospels, that they were really written later, they were produced by the church for propaganda purposes, that the true story of Jesus was lost or or really hidden by these church councils. And so you'll have things like the Da Vinci Code or these kind of things that come out. Hey, the true story of Jesus is told by these other gospels, the gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, uh, and, and, and if that's the true story. And Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And you hear this kind of stuff, right? And what you need to know is that's like that, it's not credible scholarship, that, that true scholars, I mean worldwide peer scholars, they, they all agree largely on who Jesus. There's certain things they agree with, you know, he's historical, this is who he was, this things, and, and the primary documents that they see as historical, as top scholars, whether they believe in Jesus personally or not, doesn't make a difference. What they they see is that the four gospels we have are the earliest documents that we have. These other documents, like the gospel of Peter and so on, written much, much later in the mid to late second century, so 100, 150 years after Jesus, when all eyewitnesses are gone. And they all have an axe to grind. They're all uh, kind of uh, promoting a particular uh, type of uh, agenda. We call it Gnostic teaching, that it's a combination of kind of Jewish mysticism with Greek philosophy and Christianity creating a new thing. And they're trying to, to you know, to back this up by writing stories about Jesus. And so this is a like commonly known in scholarly world that's accepted. And so it's important for you to know that. So, so when we come into the Gospel of Mark, we are uh, 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 earliest document, 35 years in, Rome, Christians through Peter, all right? Now, the third, the third uh, The third reason I love the, uh, by the way, uh, on your note sheet there before we leave this, the New Testament supports this itself because uh, at the end of Peter's gospel, uh, there's, I mean, Peter's first letter, uh, there's a character in the New Testament that goes by the name of John Mark. You may have heard of him. He was an associate of the Apostle Paul. Um, and, And many scholars believe that John Mark is the same Mark that wrote the gospel, but whether he was or not, we know from the New Testament that Mark was very close to Peter. Uh, so in, uh, in, at the end of Peter's first letter, there in your note sheet, uh, Peter's in Rome, and he says, She who is in Babylon, which is sort of a cryptogram, it's a code word for Rome. There's a church in Rome that, where he's at, uh, chosen together with you, sends her, you her greetings, and so does my son. Mark, right? And so, uh, so, so Mark is a close associate, so close, the apostle Peter sees him as his spiritual son, and so, so that all seems to fit together. Now, the third thing, the reason I love this uh, story, this, this uh, gospel, is because Mark, you might want to, the key word would be storyteller. You might want to write that down. Mark is a great storyteller, uh, and he uses uh, uh, several different techniques to tell his story well. Uh, let me give you three examples, One of the things we'll see in Mark's gospel is that he's a very detailed writer, much more so than than Matthew or Luke. If you were just, you know, to to guess, uh, you know, Mark is the shortest gospel of all four, and on the surface you'd guess that therefore his stories must be the shortest edited down versions. But the reality is exactly the opposite. Often the stories that are events that are recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, same event, it's often twice as long in Mark as in Luke or Matthew because he's giving a lot more detail. Let me me give you an example. Some of you may remember the story when Jesus uh, uh, heals a man who is paralyzed on this mat. Here's the way Matthew tells the story. Uh, Some people brought a man who is paralyzed to Jesus on a mat, and he says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven, which creates a firestorm of criticism From the religious leaders. That's how Matthew tells the story. Some people brought a guy paralyzed on a mat. Okay, boring. All right, so here's how Mark tells the story. Mark tells the story like this. There was four guys. They carried their friend on a mattress, a a mat, like a a pallet, uh, to Jesus. Jesus was teaching in a house that day in Capernaum. Uh, The house was packed, people were spilling out in the streets, no chance they could get to him. And so these friends come up with a bright idea, I know, let's let him down through the roof. So they climb up the stairs on the outside, they go and they dig a hole in the guy's roof. (laughs) Let him down. Now that's a much better story, right? And so this is what we're going to see throughout Marcus. He often adds great detail that just kind of helps you to visualize it. When Jesus, for example, falls asleep at sea in the midst of this big storm, uh, all three guys tell the story, but it's only Mark who says he was in the st- Jesus fell asleep in the stern, and he had a pillow under his head. Very much a first-hand, you know, first-hand type evidence of Peter's telling the story. He was there. He remembers crazy. He's got the pillow and everything. He's got his teddy bear. I, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but, but he's like he, he's just, you know he's asleep. And so giving you can get much more detail. Second reason, I love him as a storyteller is that not only is he detailed, he tells his stories often in present tense. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, some of you have been here a while, and you know that when I, when I start a message, sometimes I start with a story. And when I start with a story, I often tell it in present tense. I, I don't tell it as if, Hey, there was this guy five years ago, and let me tell you what happened to him. I start off and say, he got up that morning and as he's walking to the front door. Uh, he's wondering what will happen in his day. I'm telling it as if you're there, kind of watching. And the reason I do that is it makes for much more powerful storytelling. It, drives, it draws you in. Your mind begins to imagine the picture. You can see it happening. You're experiencing it as it happened. Well, Mark uses that same technique often when he's telling his stories. Like, for example, in the story of the man let down through the roof, he, he will he will use some past tense. He'll say they, the guy, these four guys brought this guy. He was on a mat. He, they dug a hole. It's all past tense. But when he gets to the part where Jesus talks to him, he switches into present tense in the Greek. You don't see it in the English, but he switches into present tense. And it doesn't say Jesus said to him, which is past tense. It says Jesus says to him. And we switch suddenly into present tense. And and it becomes much more compelling. And so, as we go through the story uh, of, of of Mark, I will point that out at times, um, and I'll describe it because that's Mark's technique. Now, here's the thing: Matthew uses that technique very seldom. Luke uses it hardly at all. But for Mark, it's a great storytelling uh, technique. Uh, third, third thing: uh, the reason I love uh, Mark's uh, storytelling abilities is that Mark has a way of telling a story that's very raw. It's uh, visceral. It's edgy, it's uncut, um, and that's why I like it. You know, for me as a Christ follower, uh, I leave the sweet artificial sweetener out. Uh, just tell me the way life really is. I want to know exactly what it was like when it was there. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to like uh, pie in the sky. I want reality, right? And so, and so that that's. I want that to characterize my life. I want it to understand my character, my teaching, and, and Mark is a very raw guy. For example, that he is going to often include uh, this visceral, emotional response of Jesus uh, and other events and people that are going through this thing. And so it's, just, it's kind of this uncut version. So, for example, um, in the story, uh, uh, there's like several, several different uh, stories where you see this, but like one would be in chapter 1, uh, when Jesus heals the leper. Uh, Now, of course, uh, all three guys, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they tell that Jesus reached out and touched him, which was amazing because no one touched lepers. And so we'll we'll go through that. But here's what Jesus adds. When the guy comes and says, if you're willing, I know, he falls down the ground He says, if you're willing, I know you can do this. Mark is the only one who adds this detail. And Jesus looked at him, and his heart was just filled with compassion. And in that moment, I get insight into Jesus I don't get from the other two guys. A uh, favorite story of mine, chapter three of Mark. Uh, it's, it's a Sabbath day. It's in a synagogue. Religious leaders are there. They're looking for legal grounds to accuse Jesus and bring him up on charges of healing on the Sabbath. And so uh, all three guys tell the story, but, but here's what happens right before he heals him. In Mark's account, it says he looks around at these religious leaders and he was angry at them. No one else says it. I love that because it helps me to understand there's certain things that really tick Jesus off, right? And, and otherwise I'd have to wait till Revelation when he's coming back with a sword in his mouth to, not, to figure that out. And so I, I don't wanna be ticking him off, right? So this is good for me to know. There's certain things that tick him off, uh, all right? And, and so let's, you, you jump ahead, you get to, to Mark chapter six. All three guys tell the story. Uh, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth. He couldn't do any miracles there because they, they wouldn't trust in him. He's just like the hometown kid, you know? uh prophet's not accepted his own town. But here's how Matthew and Luke tell the story. They say Jesus didn't do many miracles there, which is true. Here's how Mark tells it. Jesus couldn't do many miracles there, which puts a whole different spin on it, right? And there's an the insight that comes there that for us to experience Jesus' power in our life, we, we have to trust him. And so it's almost like Matthew and Luke go, you know what? There could be misunderstanding with the way Mark put that. And so we're just going to clean it up and say instead of he couldn't do it, we're going to say he didn't do because we don't want to like make it like Jesus can't do certain things. Or, you know, that kind of, I want to clean up. So th- they're both true, but I just love Mark. He's just so raw. He's just so edgy. He just puts it out there. I, I love it when in chapter 10, when we have the story of this rich young CEO who comes to, to Jesus, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Mark's the only one that tells us. And this guy's about to reject Jesus. He's about to say, Jesus, I love you, but you're not worth the price. He's about to tell him that. And, and here's what Mark adds. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And so what you're getting is just this visceral, raw, kind of edgy, uncut look to, to the, the story. And so, so when, you, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, let's kind of sum it up. When we come to the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're coming to the first document in human history about Jesus Christ, written early in the, in the movement of Jesus while eyewitnesses are, are all around, written at the heart of the Roman Empire, uh, written as a manual for Christian living to understand what it looks like to follow Christ for believers, written as an evangelistic tool to introduce nonbelievers to Jesus. And what we're going to do in this series is we've got front row seats, uh, from Mark, the master storyteller, story teller, as we sit around and as he tells us, here's what I learned from Peter about who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. And that's the journey that we're about to embark on. Now, it's funny because uh, early on in this series, as, uh, early on when I was thinking of this series, it was many months ago, I felt like God was putting it in my heart that this was to be our series to start the new year with. And it's funny for me, like when it comes to series, I never feel like I choose them. I just feel like something is chosen for us, that this is what we're supposed to do. And I never know how long they're going to last either. And so when I first started thinking about this study of Mark, uh, my first thought was it would be awesome if it's like maybe 12, 15 uh, uh, messages. Don't cover all, the ch- all of the chapters. Don't cover every incident. You know, we will just, you know, we'll just kind to hit the high points and, and, and then we'll be done by Easter and we'll be ready for something. And that's kind of my thought. And so, but of course, as I sit down to write, I don't really have a whole lot of control. I just kind of see what starts happening there. Like, God, what do you have? And and here's what I know, uh, that this week I started working on the 10th message in this series, and it's in the middle of chapter two. (laughs) So my new prayer is, God, it would be awesome if we finish this series before Jesus comes back. Um, So, today, we're going to be jumping in, and and there on on your note sheet, it says the story starts the first sentence, (laughs) and true to form, we're covering one sentence today. (laughs) But what I want you to do with me now, I want you to do something special. This is not, we're closing in prayer now, but I want you to stand with me. Would you stand with me? Because I'm telling you, this has happened to me last night. It wasn't in my notes or anything. But it was just a sense during worship last night that we stand on the verge of an amazing uh, adventure, that we stand today as a body of Christ followers, people who love Jesus Christ, come under his leadership, and we're about to read the very first document in human history that we have about the person of Jesus Christ. And and so with that, we're standing with believers down through the eight. This is the most important documents in human history. This document rocked the world. The world has never been the same. And we stand today as Christ's followers to start that journey that believers have taken for the last 2,100 years. And I want to read with you just this very opening sentence. And I I want you just to listen to it. It's what we're covering today, just the very first sentence, uh, verse 1. As Mark says, he says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we begin this journey about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and as today we delve into what first century people in the Roman Empire would have heard with a very simple introduction, we pray you'd open our eyes in a fresh way to who Jesus is, why he's come, and what it means to follow him. And we pray that today would be a new beginning in our life as we launch this new year together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. All right, yeah, we're ready to go. All right, so so there, there's the first, you know, pull your Bibles out now, uh, uh, Mark 1, 1, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're really bright, you might have that, uh, and so you don't need to look at your Bible, but that's what we're covering, and, and here's what I want to do. If you read that uh, today, for many of us, it seems like a very simple statement, no big deal, simple introduction, almost like a title of the book. Uh, And that's true, but if we could kind of rewind the clock and go back to 65 AD, we're in the the city of Rome. We are either a new Christ follower who who wants to learn about Jesus, or oh, we're we're just checking out Jesus. We're not sure if we wanna follow or not. And and as we read that opening sentence, can I tell you something? It would be like emotional fireworks going off. It would be like a a cannon shot over the bow of, of, of the boat of your life. That with his opening sentence, uh, Mark sends a message that something big is about to happen. Something epic is about to happen. And, and we don't catch it because we're, we're not back there. The words don't have the same meaning for us they had for them. And so what I want to do is I want to take these, this, this one sentence and break it down into three phrases. And I want to come back and talk about what they would have heard, not what we would have heard, but what they would have heard as first century uh, citizens of Rome or members of uh, people who lived in Rome, what they would have heard. And so there in your note sheet, you have this section about the one sentence and uh, the story starts the first sentence. And what I want to do is you'll see there's three spots there for three phrases. So let's jump in. Let's go back in time. Let's hear it as they would have. The first, the first phrase is the beginning of the gospel. Now, uh, the word beginning, we'll come back to that later, but I want to focus on this word gospel. For those of us who are longtime Christ followers, uh, even if, you're, if you, even if, like this is the first time you've ever been to church in your life, which by the way, if that's true, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. Uh, so uh, if, but whether you're kind of long time with this or brand new at this, chances are you're familiar with the word gospel. It's part of our culture. And, and you may think in terms of Jesus or Christianity or the cross or the plan of salvation or a certain type of music. Uh, you know, but there's something that, but by and large, when we hear the word gospel, we think religious, right? There's some kind of religious connotation. Here's what I want you to catch. In the first century, if you heard the word gospel, you would not think religious at all. It had nothing to do, for, for maybe in small cases, but overall, it was a secular term. And so I wanna break this down. And we talked about this a little bit a couple series ago in the assignment, but well, I wanna come back, recap, and for those of you who are new, kinda of bring stuff to speed. So let's just break down the word, all right? So the, the word in Greek is really made up of, of a prefix and a noun. And so if you're taking notes, so I'll give you the, the spelling. The, the, the prefix are just two letters, The letter E and U. It's pronounced U. And and it's a prefix that means good. And so it's still, as we see it today in the English language. Uh, For example, uh, we go to a funeral or a memorial service and you hear a eulogy. What's a eulogy? It's about where you say really good and nice things about someone who may not have been. It's a eulogy. we have the word euphemism. What's a euphemism? It's where you make sound, something that doesn't sound so good, make it sound better. So a trash collector becomes a sanitation engineer. Right? So that's a euphemism. So the first word means you. Okay, good. The second word is the word angelion. And so let me, let me spell that for you. A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Angelion in Greek means a message, an announcement. Uh, it's where we get our word angel from because angels are often messengers. You put them together, the word is euangelion. And, and it, what it was, it means a good message, good news, good announcement. But like I said, nothing religious. Right? There's a small exception I won't go into now. But they're, they're, for the most part, Roman Empire, you're not going to hear religious. What you're going to think of is just good, it's a, it's a general secular term. So what is the euangelion? could be the of a new birth. You just had a baby. It's a birth announcement. It could be a wedding announcement, eugelion of a new wedding. Could be a. It could be uh, there's a sale on it, Vaughn's on anchovies. Okay, <laughs> now it wouldn't be Vaughn's. They'd call it Johns back then, uh, but um, <laughs> but that, that's a, a literal example. A little ex- we know from history. A little example. The eugelion anchovies are sale in the market. Okay. So, so it's not a, a Christian term, not a spiritual term. It's just a term. But there's one way uh, usage that was associated with was very powerful. The word euangelion was often associated with good news, a major announcement about the empire of Rome, or about the emperor of Rome, okay? about the kingdom of Rome. So remember, in the ancient time when the when the Bible was when the, when the church was born. Uh, remember, Caesar was seen as a god. There were temples to Caesar. You would go and burn incense to Caesar as an act of worship. When you burned incense, you would say Caesar is Lord. Uh, one of the, the, the first of Caesar that was seen as a god was named Augustus. He was the one who was, who was there when Jesus was born in, in power. And Augustus, one of his titles was the savior of the world. All right? so, so do you get this? When you're in Rome... And you hear the word euangelion, you don't think Jesus, you don't think Christianity, you don't think spiritual life, you think empire, you think major announcement. So what would happen in Rome, like when a new Caesar was born, a euangelion would be sent out, a messengers would be sent out throughout the empire with the good news, a new savior has come, you see this new Caesar. When, when, when the Caesar would ascend to the throne, a euangelion would be sent out that they have a new Caesar over the kingdom, uh, that, that when, they, when, the, uh, when they would have a major victory, maybe they conquer Gaul or France or something, a euangelium. You follow this? But it's a very secular term. It's associated. So here's what I want you to catch. As first century Christians or people checking out Christians, and when you read the opening line, the euangelium of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, immediately uh, uh, images of empire, of kingdom, of nothing religious. It's it's something big, something epic is happening in this story. All right, that's the first, first one. Second phrase is the phrase Jesus Christ. Now, just like with gospel, this is a word we're familiar with, the name Jesus Christ. Uh, you've never been to church, uh, uh, brand new, Christian. You know, if you're in our culture, you're going to hear, if nothing else, you're going to hear it in a curse word often, right? So Jesus Christ, well-known name. But here's what we've been learning the last, you know, we've mentioned this several times. The first word is a name. The second word is a title. So let's talk about the name. Let's talk about the name Jesus and what a first century Jew would hear with the name Jesus. Uh, Jesus, or in Hebrew, the name is Yeshua, was a very popular name in Palestine at the time of Christ. Uh, I remember I was really surprised with this. Like when I first started reading the Roman historian, as a Jewish Roman historian named Josephus, who wrote in the first century at the time of general timeline of Christ, he, he talks a lot about the nation of Israel. He helps us understand what the culture was like there, and and I was just blown away because there was all these Jesuses running around, you know this Jesus, that Jesus, and you begin to understand that's why we call him Jesus of Nazareth, because there's a lot of other Jesuses. You know, there was Jesus from Bonzol. there was Jesus, you know, all these different places. So, so Jesus was a common name, but it was an important name. And it was an important name because in Hebrew, the name Yeshua is the name of a, a very important leader in Jewish history that was the leader that led the nation of Israel into the promised land, okay? We know him as what? Yeah, Joshua, okay? So Yeshua equals Joshua equals Jesus, all the same right? And then the name Joshua, guess what it means? It means Yahweh is salvation. That's what it means. And so in the Old Testament, God leads the nation of Israel in the promised land. Yahweh is salvation, is leading the way. Uh, In the Old Testament, the prophets predicted that one day Yahweh would come back to the nation, rescue them from their enemies, and, and usher in this golden age, the kingdom of God. Yahweh would come and do that. Okay, and so now we have the main character coming on the scene of this euangelia on this empire story, this Star Wars, you know, kind of thing, and, and, and so, and what's the name of the main character? Yahweh is salvation. Something big is happening. That's what you would have heard. The second name is not really a name at all. His, the second part of the title is, is Christ, and we've, I've mentioned this recently, but, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's like you go to, you know, your driver's license, you know, you get pulled, Jesus gets pulled over, first name Jesus, last name Christ. The name Christ is a title. The name Christ is the equivalent in Greek of the Old Testament word, Messiah. So in the Old Testament, God had promised that one day a great king would come from the line of David who would usher in this new era, the human race, new heavens, new earth, the kingdom of God on earth. And and God had promised that. And, And so the kings of Israel, when you would become a king, they would anoint you with oil. And that oil would often symbolize, maybe the Holy Spirit symbolized being set apart to God. And so you were the representative of the nation. You were the anointed one as the king. And so what developed over time was this understanding that one day when the great king came, he would be the ultimate anointed one. And so that's where we get the term Messiah from. When you move into Greek, in Greek the word Christos means anointed one. So Christos equals Messiah. So Hebrew, mashach, Greek, Christos, same deal. They both mean the anointed one, which means the king, okay, the king. And so if you're first century Rome, We've just told you a lot, haven't we? There's a and an epic story, epic good news. Something big is happening. Yahweh is salvation, who is the promised king of Israel that will usher in the golden age. That's what the story is about, the coming of the king, which is why we get the, the name of this series, uh, King Jesus. All right, the third, the third phrase. The third phrase is in some ways the most powerful, most important. It's son of God. Now, if you were living in first century Israel, or if you were a Jewish person in Rome, that the name Son of God would not be a new thought to you, because one of the titles for the Messiah was Son of God, and this had a long history. Uh, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, God sent Moses down to Pharaoh, and he said, tell Pharaoh to let my son go. Uh, the nation of Israel was called the Son of God. And then if you move forward in time, when King David comes, there's this prophecy that out of David's line, this great king is gonna come who will rule forever. And then God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son. And so there becomes this thing that the, the, the Israel is the Son of God. The king of Israel becomes the Son of God. When the ultimate king of Israel, he'll become the ultimate Son of God. But catch this, that at the time of Jesus, the first century, no one thought that the son of God, that that meant he's really the son of God. Like, that he's, like, made out of God stuff. I mean, like, like, no one, it, it was a title. It was a, just like the king of Israel was the son of God. You know, it's like, you know, just, just like the name, it's like, it's not literally, like, metaphysically, uh, he's the son of God. It's not a part of it, it's just a title. But what Mark is telling us here is this was the claim of Mark. This is the claim of the Apostle Peter. This is the claim of early church. It goes back to the claims of Jesus. That in Jesus Christ, that Yahweh is salvation, who had promised to break into time and space and rescue the nation of Israel. That that person, Yahweh, has literally come. And he has come in the person of his son. That this Messiah is, like, not your grandfather's Messiah. He is, a, he, he is more than you ever could have anticipated that God himself is breaking into human history in the person of his son. There on your note sheet, I put a great quote from a man named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a famous pastor. Um, he is an author. He's written a lot of bestsellers about Christianity. Um, I'd highly recommend him as a, as a writer. Um, but he a couple of years, a year or two ago, he wrote a book on the Gospel of Mark um, and in the intro to that, it was called the King's Cross. And in the, in the intro to that, this is what he says there on your note sheet. Mark does not just call Jesus the Christ, or the, the Messiah. Right? That was expected. He says, uh, he goes further. The Son of God is an astonish, astonishing, bold term that goes beyond the popular understanding of the Messiah at the time. It is a claim to outright divinity. The Lord God, the long-awaited divine king, in other words, Yahweh, who's going to come as a king and and establish his kingdom on earth. He says that that king who would rescue his people and Jesus, they are somehow one and the same person. And and that's what we're going to see. And and let me tell you why this is so important for us, because we we live in a culture, and even as Christ's followers, we are, are, I think, believe all of us to one degree or another infected by this in our culture, this disease. In our culture today, one of the most common spiritual beliefs is that all paths lead to the same place. And, and then when it comes to God, it doesn't really matter what you believe, whether, whether you're into Islam or uh, Hinduism or Buddhism or New Age or Christianity, it doesn't really matter, Mormonism, it doesn't really matter what you're in, as long as you're sincere uh, it's going to work, and as long as it works for you, that it's all good because th- these are really all just saying the same thing and describing the same reality with different names. Very common in our culture today. It's probably the, one of the most common core bedrock beliefs of our culture today, you know? I, I, I saw recently where we had our first um, kind of Hindu congressperson from Hawaii and so they are brought in. And like I, I believe it was a Hindu priest brought in and they swore on the Baha, 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 Baha. Uh, you know. Um And, and so it's, it's very prevalent in our culture today and that the comments from the congressman, I think it's really good that we're just open to all spirituality. It's a very common uh, concept. But what we're going to find is that what Mark is claiming, what Peter is claiming, what the early church claimed, what Jesus claimed, is no, there's a time when the God who created all time and all space, that he entered into his creation and became a part of the human race to rescue us. And so if you want to know the God who is there, if you want to have relationship with the God who is there, if you want to understand how life works, if you want to be rescued from your sin and enter into his kingdom, life transforming reality, that it has to be through Jesus of Nazareth because in Jesus Christ, God has broken into human history. And so as we go through this study, we're, we're not just watching the son of David, we're watching the son of God. And we're seeing God reach out to that leper filled with compassion. And we're seeing God angry at these religious hypocrites who don't want him to heal on the Sabbath. And we're seeing God respond to this woman pushing through the crowd. And we're seeing God respond to this, this rich young ruler who wants to follow him, but he doesn't think he's worth the price. And, and we're seeing God in Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. And so here's the challenge for every one of us Our view of God, our view of Jesus is a mix. Every one of us in this room, me included. It's it's a mix of truth and error. And one of the things that's gonna happen in this series is we're gonna ask Jesus to reveal himself to us in new powerful ways that transform us and help us to know the truth about who God is, who we are, what it means to follow him, and the path to life. And so in this opening sentence, which to us just sounds like a religious title of a book. We just skip over it. Yeah, okay, yeah. To a, a man or a woman living in Rome, especially if they have any Jewish background from the first century, this simple title, the euangelion of Jesu Christos, the Will to, to Theu, they hear those words, and it is, it is powerful. Something big is happening. You know, you know, Star Wars, it starts off with that, you know, once in a long, you know, you're know, like, you know, something epic is about to happen here. Once in a galaxy long, long ago, or what? Like, that's what the impact it would have on them. Something big is happening. Something amazing claim is going to happen, and men and women, that's the journey we're going to be on this this year until Jesus comes back. And so, um, <laughs> now for today, for today, though, uh, for today. Uh, There's a section there in your note sheet called New Beginnings, the Good News. And what I want to do is I just want to take these three phrases. and I want to bring out kind of one big picture principle that for us, as we we get ready to enter into a brand new year together, not just a new series, but a brand new year, we stand at the the doorstep, the the first step of a brand new year. I want to talk about one big picture principle that flows out of what Mark's trying to tell us about the gospel that uh, is really revolutionary and will prepare us uh, to, to go in the new year. So there in your note sheet, the principle goes like this that the gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the gospel signals, uh, flares are going up, uh, a new beginning. Uh, the, gospel of Je- uh, the gospel signals a new beginning. Now, I mean this in a couple ways. First of all, uh, what Mark is telling us, the euangelion is, Uh, is something big is about to happen. Uh, God, uh, Yahweh is salvation. is about to break into human history. The son of God's coming and life is never gonna be the same. He's gonna bring his new kingdom, this new Christ, this new king is breaking in and life will never be the same for planet Earth and that's the truth. If you look at it historically, the, the coming of Jesus changed everything for, for, uh, for, for the human race, right? So, uh, so Mark's telling something big is happening that's gonna lead to the restoration of the kingdom that's coming to all things being uh, coming together. Uh, but he's also telling us that, that this is a, a beginning for anyone who follows this new king. This is gonna be the message that we see in Mark, is that for any man or woman who decides to believe and trust in this Jesus Messiah, character, that it's a new beginning in, in their life. It's, it's like the start of a whole new life for them. Something you don't see as clearly in English, but it becomes very clear and important in Greek, is that if you, if you have your Bibles open, most of you don't, right? But if you have your Bibles open, look, look at Mark 1, one. What's the very first word that you see? <coughs> the. Very good. Last night took a long time. Uh, I said it's not duh, it's the. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, good. You're on the ball. So the very first word is the. Well, in the first, in, in the Greek, uh, it's not the word the. Uh, there is no word the in the New Testament, in, in, the, in, uh, the Testament in, in this verse. There's no the beginning. In Greek, it's the word arche, and it's the word that means beginning. And so the very first word, if you read this in Greek, is, you see, it's arche, beginning. And many scholars believe that Mark is sending a very special message. Because how does the story of the human race begin back in Genesis? In the beginning. And then everything went south. (laughs) And now Mark is telling the euangelion of a new beginning. That with the coming of the king... Something new is breaking into human history, and this is what you find in the Gospel of Mark as he tells the story of Jesus. And by the way, you know, we I'll refer to it as the Gospel of Mark because that's what we refer to it as now. But you do understand this: that when Mark wrote this, there was no such thing as gospel in a literary sense. Like the the gospel wasn't a term; it was just eunghelion, which meant good news. What happens, Mark writes his gospel, right? He writes the story of Jesus. His opening word is beginning the gospel. Then Matthew writes, Luke writes, John writes. And it just, it just, kinda, it just becomes a popular way to talk about this short story about Jesus. And so, so I'll use that term, but just understand it. It wasn't like there was a gospel back then, like a, you know, like a parable or a short story or something like that. So, so when Mark tells us what, what you're going to see in the story of Jesus as he tells it is that whenever a man or woman comes into contact with Jesus of Nazareth and decides to trust and follow him, that immediately it's a new beginning in their life every time. So, so for example, we're going to read about four commercial fishermen who come into contact with Jesus, believe, and follow. Their lives are never the same. We're going to read about a leper who was a reject from society that had the nerve to come to Jesus, even though he wasn't supposed to get within 50, 100 yards, whatever it was, and beg him to break the rules. Life changes. We're going to read about four men who've got a friend who let him down through the roof. And Jesus says, this man doesn't heal him. He says, your sins are forgiven. We're going to learn that Jesus, when he comes in contact with people, has the authority, the power to actually forgive sins, rewrite your life. We're going to learn that. Um, we're going to meet a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, had a, a, a menstrual problem that wouldn't stop. It drained her life and energy away. She was a reject from her culture because you, you had the flow of blood. You had to stay away. You're unclean. For 12 years, spent all her money on a doctor. But she takes a risk. I'm going to fight my way to Jesus. I believe if I can just touch him, life will change. She was right. We're going to read about a young man who didn't follow Jesus, who wanted to follow Jesus, thought it was, but he thought the price was too high. Jesus wasn't worth it. A rich young ruler who comes and his life doesn't change because he won't trust and he won't believe. We'll read about a Roman centurion who's a hardened Roman officer overseeing the crucifixion, one of the cruelest and most visceral Gut wrenching experience you could ever oversee, torturing of a person. That's his job. And yet, when he meets Jesus, he's the first one in the Gospel of Mark who will realize really who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. His life will change. And what we're going to experience in this series is we're going to see person after person as they come under the influence of Jesus and choose to trust and follow him, their life changes. And it doesn't change it's overnight, it changes. And you know what? It's the same today. When a man or woman comes to believe and trust in Jesus and begin to follow Jesus and surrender the reins of their life to Jesus, their life changes like that. Sometimes it's an overnight change, sometimes it's the start of a gradual change, but it changes. In fact, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way if any person comes to Christ, he is a new creation. But it's not just true for people who come to Jesus the first time. I want you to catch this. The life of a Christ follower should be a life of a series of new beginnings. Because when you follow Jesus the King, he always has a new adventure. He always has a new assignment, sometimes tough ones. He's always got a new step to take. There's always an old boat that you need to get out of and walk on water. There's always some nets that need to be laid down. There's always some hard choices that need to be made. And whenever we follow the King Jesus, it leads to new beginnings. Our lives should be lives of new beginnings. It should be a series of new beginnings. If you're following the King, here's what, what we're gonna learn. When you follow the King, the power of the coming kingdom gets released into your life. So in the Old Testament, the prophecies were when the king comes, the kingdom comes, all wrongs will be turned to right, life will be healed, joy, peace, wisdom, shalom, right? It's going to break in. And we don't get to experience all of that here and now until Jesus comes back in the kingdom in fullness. But here's the thing. Whenever we're following Jesus the power of the age to come breaks into our lives in increasing measure. The the opposite is also true, that there are times in our life, even as Christ followers, while we name him king, we aren't following. Sometimes that's due to deliberate disobedience. We know what King Jesus is asking of us. He's asking something with our finances. He's asking something with a relationship. He's asking us to forgive someone who's hurt us deeply. He's asking us to pursue sexual purity and to stop sleeping with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. He's asked us to uh, pursue a ministry that he has for it. There's something that King Jesus is asking, and there's times in all of our lives, we've all done it, where we've said no. And when that happens, the power of the coming age begins to seep out of our lives we lose the joy, we lose the peace, we lose the power, we lose the transformation. Relationships start breaking. Life starts breaking down because we've cut ourselves off from the king and the power of his kingdom. Sometimes in our lives, it's not so much that we deliberately choose to disobey the king. Sometimes it's just that we get so distracted with life that we lose connection with the king. Last year at this time, the start of the new year, we did a series here called The Simple Life, Putting First Things First. And in that series we learned this this powerful principle that if you want to put the first things first, you have to what? Yeah, put the first things first. Very good, a year later, that made my my year right there. Um, (laughs) Usually it's like if you remember by Wednesday, I'm happy. whole year later, we're doing well. Yeah, and so we talked about this. It's so how often as Christ followers that, that we stop experiencing the power of the kingdom because we, we start withdrawing from the king. We may not even do it intentionally, but there's, there's no time in our schedule for the king, for our time alone. Maybe we you know coming to worship and be taught by the king here in the setting and through his word um, that, that, that suddenly is like, well, you know, we're just missing a lot, or maybe we, well, it's, we're too busy to be in a life group, or this ministry, I can't do that anymore, or whatever. We just get distracted. And so the things that fuel that relationship get cut off. We become like a gasoline that's running on empty, like a car that's running on empty. We're running on fumes. There's no kingdom activity in our life. And so as we start this new year, I want to give you a chance to evaluate your relationship with the king. You know, some, some of you here are doing amazingly well. You are right on track. You're, you're under the leadership of the king. Um, and, and if that's the case, I just encourage you just to go before him and to continue to ask him for more. You know, one of the things that I pray for uh, pretty much m- most days that I pray, um, that I spend time with him alone, one of the things I, I just ask him is, God, I just want more. You know, I just want more. Would you take me deeper? You know, this morning before I came to church, I would starve just sometimes prayer prayer there. Got the headphones on, tune the world out. And my my prayer, I'm writing them down in my, my journal. I'm just praying them, you know, fill me, um, shepherd me, lead me, love me, heal those parts of me that that are broken. I don't even realize them yet. Jesus, I just I just need you to shepherd me as you promised you, you would. Take me deeper. And, and you may be here, and your, your walk with God is good right now. It's just a, the start of a new year. It's a time for you to go before God and give him this year and say, I, I want this to be a year of new beginnings. And so right now, we're going to go into a time of communion together. And it's going to be a time of reflection. Here's what I'd say. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus... And you want to be part of his kingdom. You you want to come under the leadership of your true king. You want to experience his forgiveness, his power, his spirit, your life. There's no better way than today to go to communion as we go around the room. We take the the body uh, and blood, the elements that represent his body, his blood, his death for us that make the kingdom possible. There's no better way than than to, for you to go and say, Jesus, I want you as my king. And by, by, by taking your body, by, by drinking your blood, I, I want you in my life. I want you to be my true king. Would you come in and forgive me? Would you empower me? Would you change me? I come under your leader. No better way. If, if you're here today and you're walking well with God, take that communion. Find a quiet place around the room. Give this year to him. Ask him it's a year Of of new beginnings. You'd hear his voice more clearly. You'd follow him more closely. It's a year of of ongoing growth for you. Maybe you're here and you're deliberately disobedient. Then come to communion. Bow the knee to your king. Tell him you're sorry. Repent. Ask him back into your life to lead you again. Lay it down. Lay it down and, and feel the power of the kingdom energizing you again. Maybe you're here today, and you're just a distracted person, and you recognize it, and you've gotten off track, and there's other things that are just coming in your life. The worries of life are just, the worries of life are just taking you away from the King that you'd come and meet with Him today. Does that sound good? Just a time to be with the King, and to ask Him for a new beginning. Yep, for that, that's good. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna go around the room to the different stations and. I just encourage you to find a place to stand, to pray. If you're here with a spouse, maybe you're going to pray together, maybe it's a friend, pray together. Um, the one thing I would say is that if you're not yet a Christ follower, uh, I would encourage you to find a place to pray or to think or whatever, but I would encourage you don't take communion because communion is really, uh, it's a relationship symbol between us and our king. It doesn't really make sense to participate if you're not under his leadership yet. It would be much more meaningful for you to wait until you truly come under his leadership. So let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beginning of a new year, the beginning of the gospel in our lives in a fresh way, the good news, the coming of the King. We pray that you would meet us now, whatever our need. We pray for a new beginning, and pray it in the name of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, amen. Well, what a way to start a new year, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement that God has broken into human history through Yahweh his salvation. He has revealed himself. He's calling us to join him in his kingdom. He wants to release his power in our hearts. He's a God of new beginnings. I love how in the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, God says, forget the former things. And he says, for I will do a new thing. And it will spring up. And will you not be aware of it? I will make streams to form in the deserts of your life. Isn't that awesome? And then the apostle Paul comes as if any person comes to Christ, he's a new creation. And when you come to the last chapters of Revelation, Jesus shows up again and he says, here's the message. Behold, I make all things new. From beginning to end, God is the God of new beginnings. It's why he's come. To restore, give us back our life, lead us into the future, preferred future for us. Every one of us periodically need a spiritual reboot in our life. And this is our day, right? We're getting ready for the new year. We're coming under the leadership of a new king. We're excited for what he's doing. We want to be under his as a church as individuals, we want to be under the leadership, experiencing the kingdom power. Amen? Amen. Amen. May the king of the universe be the king of your lives, and may his kingdom come and his will be done every day as you serve him and as you worship him of the king of new beginnings. God bless. See you next week.